You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Brought to you this week as a very special episode. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meekin. And I've got this strange sense of deja vu. It's, it feels like oh, it feels like only 24 hours ago that we were sat having this very conversation. It does. <laughs> Recording a show, ready yeah. to go, and then everything changes. Yep, everything changes but you. We'll go into more details next week, but we've got a bit of a, a different feel of an episode this week due to, uh, due to issues that we had yesterday. Technical uh, issues. I think we should we should at least give that away. We've not got yeah. issues between you and I. We still love each other deeply. Oh yes, I'm gazing into his eyes right now. <laughs> <laughs> but we did have some technical issues, which we'll um, we'll talk about next week's show. So things a little bit truncated, a little bit all over the place. As <laughs> Andy has hit the edit to create, well, a Frankenstein monster of a show. <laughs> <laughs> This is like the third time in all of our history that we've had something like this happen. So I Not think we're kind of getting used to it now. Hundred and how many episodes? Uh, one hundred eighty-three. We're on one hundred eighty-three. Well, three out of one hundred and eighty-three is isn't pretty isn't good a hit bad rate. Deal. Yeah. So we've got to kick the show off by talking about probably the most substantial piece of news that there's been for some times. Because actually, when we tried to do the show yesterday, this hadn't landed. This was a big part of our show where we've um, we were addressing the writer's strike well, yeah when we were recording yesterday it still hadn't all been resolved but we did have the good news yes when we were talking yesterday that there's been a lot of talks over last week there was talks pretty much every day even on saturday and then they met again on sunday and the talks were with everyone attending um, throughout the talks, not everyone's been in attendance, but this time you'd also had David Zaslav from Warner Brothers, you had Bob Iger from Disney, Ted Sarandos from Netflix, and you also had Donna Langley from Universal. All of them were around the table. It was clearly that the pressure's now starting to be felt by the industry, and so all the big head honchos were like, this needs to be resolved now. And the news came after Sunday's discussions that the writer's strike is coming to an end, or it's tentatively coming to an end. Yeah, after 145 days, the WGA has announced that it's reached a tentative agreement with the AMPTP. Which I still say needs to have a new acronym, which is easier to pronounce. I remember it on the end of TV programmes, from being a kid, not knowing what it meant for years mm. and years. Anyway, they to tentatively end the strikes which means several projects could resume production very soon. So yes. it's almost, and repeat, almost over. A message to the membership of the WGA has said that we can say with great pride that this deal is exceptional, with meaningful gains and protections for writers in every sector of the membership. It'll still be a few days before the strike is officially over because now the ratification takes place where they look over again to make sure there's no legalese that can be used as a, a loophole. And then it goes out to all the members of the WGA to vote to see whether they agree with it. But the negotiators fully expect that they've got the best deal that they could possibly get. In fact, it sounds like they've got a better deal than what they actually thought they'd get. Yeah, so details on the deal as of now are still forthcoming. So points of contention 
revolved around writers receiving better residuals from streaming shows, minimum staff sizes to prevent the use of mini rooms, and the protection from the use of AI, amongst other things. While this is certainly a monumental development, there are still a number of things that need to happen before the deal can go into effect. But after the negotiating committee votes on recommending the agreement to the WGAW board and the WJEE council, which will have likely happened on Tuesday before the show go out, the board council will then vote on whether to authorise a contract ratification vote by the membership. So, as we said, if all language in the new deal is agreeable, they'll provide a comprehensive summary to all members, address any concerns, and that should be it. There's already discussions online in various journals of projects that are expected to get announced in the next few weeks as a result of this. Ones that writers haven't been doing stuff for, but they've kind of gone, I've got ideas for. Also, it's expected that all your late night talk shows, expect John Oliver to return to uh, talk and he'll fill in all the details, no doubt, on the first episode about this whole strike action. People like John Oliver, etc., on those late shows will go be the first ones to go back into production because they're one week turnarounds with the writing team getting things out topical. So start, you'll we'll start to see momentum pretty much from day one of them saying the strike is over and boom, the ground will be hit running. On the side of the SAG after the Screen Actors Guild, there's been no talks with regards to that but they remain committed to achieving necessary terms for their own members and they urge the studios and streamers, CEOs and the AMPTP to return to the table on the back of the writer's deal to make the third deal that the Screen Actors Guild members deserve and demand. It's expected that now the the writer's section has all been hopefully cornered off that we will start to see momentum on the Screen Actors Guild because it's all well and good having writers coming up with these projects, but in a couple of months, those projects will need to go in front of the camera And without the cast involved, you're not going to get very far. So the ball is now rolling. It's about time. Thankfully, we've got there. uh, And I'm pleased that that it's tough for writers at the best of times. And such a long strike does have an effect across all of the industry. In fact, I heard just the other day, it was on uh, National BBC News about a costume designer here in the UK that couldn't make ends meet because there was no production. So it's affected not just writers, not just actors, the entire production process. Anyone involved in that clearly isn't getting paid. So there's going to be a lot of relief, hopefully by, let's let's say, as soon as possible, that everything is back. And then, of course, for us, we can start reporting on news again because we're getting to the stage this week when we were doing uh, our first take of the news that there were... (laughs) It was a bit thin. Yeah. We're basically been clamouring for just talking about anything and just padding it out with some just general chat, which I know you guys out there love the general chat. I know that you love to hear us talk nonsense about films, but we were struggling to find... I mean, it's the fact that we've been... We used to cover trailers once every three weeks, four weeks, but we're now been covering trailers quite regularly because there's been little else to talk about. We should hopefully start to get, well, I imagine next week's news is going to be two hours long with all the um, news drops of everything that's going into pre-production. <laughs> yeah, we'll be busy. We'll just have an entire show of news next week. But what we always do in the news, we normally start with it, and this is going to really confuse people because we've actually gone on to news before we've gone on to the box office. So should we cast an eye over the box office this weekend? Oh, yes. So the big release for this week is Expendables 4. Has it bit the bullet? 
Is it dead on arrival or has it hit the target, Andy? You just know that he sits at home and comes up with these little puns around the box office. (laughs) My mind is a swirling dervish of ideas. It's not had a strong opening in the US. It's the lowest of the franchise. It has opened at number two at the box office, but that's more a reflection of how quiet the box office is during September. Um, the Nun 2 holds the top spot. It's took at 8.4 million this weekend in the US. Expendables 4, or Expend Forbles, as they um, list it, it took 8.3 million for second place. Haunting in Venice, 6.3 million, holding into third place. Equalizer 3, 4.7 million to take fourth place. And Barbie is still in that top five. It refuses to let go. 3.2 million taken this weekend to keep it into fifth place. Equalizer 3, which opened a couple of weeks ago, worldwide it's made 148 million so far. It's not bad. It's uh, pretty respectable. Barbie is 1.4 million. And <laughs> even though it's on home release now and people can rent it at home, still bringing audiences in. You see, the thing about Barbie is it was that absolutely unique opportunity where people, A, would go and see it and see it again, but it became communal that groups of people yeah. would go and see it. When I went, there was a little community of, of Barbie fans who were there or, and I certainly believe from going in that was their third or fourth time having seen it and going again. Yeah we're seeing a lot of people coming and seeing it multiple times and making an evening of it each time that they're coming out. It's one of those kind of films that it's not just go and watch a film and then go home it's let's have something to eat let's go for drinks let's party let's Come on, Barbie, let's go party. So quickly, let's mention Dumb Money, because that came in fairly low on uh, after two-week release day. It's not made much, but I don't think it was ever expected to make much money. And it's kind of one of those films that we've seen a few times, actually mostly on on streaming, like the uh, Tetris movie. Yeah, it is, It's an industry film. We saw it with Air. Yeah, for instance, it is a film that not a lot was expected for. It is one that people will end up watching at home and going, oh, actually, that was quite interesting. I've not had a chance to see it yet. It's on my radar to watch before the next episode. So hopefully I'll have a review next week. But yeah, it's it's currently sat in eighth place in the US. It's not going to last long in the here in the UK. Haunting in Venice holds the top spot. Another one point five million added onto its total. That's good. Expendables four. Takes second place, taking 761,000 over its opening weekend. The Nun 2 drops to third place, 703,000. Equalizer 3, fourth place, 537,000. And Dumb Money did manage to crack the top five in the UK. We're, we are, it is more a kind of, we are that kind of audience in the UK. We kind yeah. of gravitate towards these. 506,000 it took to creep into the fifth place. Okay, so that's the box office. It will all change next week, no doubt. Shall we go through? Uh, an extra special episode of the news. Oh, can I just mention one thing before we get into the news? The Doctor Who trailer. Yep. It was great. <laughs> Landed this week. I am so excited yeah. for the return of Doctor Who. I don't like Catherine Tate. I don't mm. like the Donna Noble character. I can grit my teeth and bear it because the rest of it looks so good. It it's looks so like a proper well. celebration of the decades of Doctor because it's, it's the 60th anniversary tie-in to do this. And it looks like that. It looks like the leaning into the whole history. There's a meet the beep in there, um, voiced apparently by Miriam Margolis, the great Miriam Margolis. Yeah, hopefully she doesn't burst into swearing halfway through the episode, <laughs> which uh, she's known to do, or farting. 
don't know. But it does look great. And Neil Patrick Harris looks magnificent, as he always does when he steals scenes in everything that he pops up in. It's going to be a fun, a fun little ride for a few episodes before it hands over to the brand new Doctor in the new year. When we get some more news on the Doctor, we'll let you know. But here is this week's The News. Due to the issues that we'll be talking about next week, the news this week is just me. So I understand if you don't like listening to just me and you want Lee to interject every now and then. But for the moment, here's what little news we actually did have. The US movie industry might have kind of ground to a halt due to the writer's strike and the Screen Actors Guild strike. That doesn't stop projects going into production elsewhere in the world. And Netflix has ordered a sequel to Raw Othgarg's 2022 action-adventure monster movie, Troll. If you haven't seen Troll, it's basically a Godzilla of Norway. The film unfolds in the aftermath of an explosion in the Norwegian mountains caused by a drilling accident, which awakens an ancient slumbering troll, which then starts trekking a devastating course across the country, heading directly towards the nation's capital. As with all good Godzilla-esque monster movies, this monster isn't necessarily bad. It's just a force of nature. And getting to understand why it's making that journey is the key thing. The first film is well worth checking out. I reviewed it on the show when it got released and I gave it two thumbs up. And it became Netflix's most popular non-English film of all time with 103 million views in its first three months. Uthag is going to re-team with writer Espen Oaken and producers Espen Horn and Christian Strand Sinkerund. And the producers have said in a statement that they are again spinning on a Norwegian fairy tale figure played, directed and produced by Norwegians. Filming is expected to start in 2024. Filmmakers Adil El Arbi and Bill Alfala, who worked on season one of Ms. Marvel, have been talking about the potential future for Miss Marvel. And over the past few weeks, the news has gone from being, we're waiting for the Marvels, so that will decide what the next step will be, to, according to most recent reports, Ms. Marvel Season 2 is going to get a green light. Now, obviously, it's not confirmed at the moment. Writer's strike, etc. only just coming to an end. So we might get some more news on this in the coming weeks. But this has possibly come on the back of the reception to the most recent Marvel's trailers. Now, the Marvel's trailers have been taken a bit of hit and a bit of miss, but even the people who have been negative about it and says, oh, I'm not sure that this is going to work, have singled out Villani as Ms. Marvel as being the one saving factor that still keeps them interested. And it's no surprise. Her approach to this character shows her love for it. Iman Villani is an absolute joyous tour de force of nature. She's just immensely excitable and she's playing this role as a fan. She is a fan of comic books. She's one of us. She's a nerd. She's a geek, but she's particularly a fan of Ms. Marvel and getting to play it. She's making sure that it's the best interpretation of the character that you can get. She's absolutely marvelous. I'm all for a season two of Ms. Marvel. And fingers crossed this latest news is genuine and that the series is definitely going to be going ahead. In addition, with regards to the Marvels, there's been a lot of negative criticism from some of the press online this week because the budget has been revealed to be around 220 million, which a lot of headlines and clickbait articles are questioning whether it's money just going to get wasted and the film is going to flop and they shouldn't have spent this much money on it. Now, a couple of things to take into consideration. First of all, 
Captain Marvel made over a billion. So why are you kicking up this stink that a 220 million sequel is costing too much? Secondly, when Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness cost over 290 million, no one battered an eyelid. When Thor Love and Thunder cost 250 million, no one battered an eyelid. Yet this film that is cheaper, that hasn't cost as much, which has three female leads in the central... Oh, I see it now. I can see exactly why these articles are being negative. Sorry. Move on. Move on. Now, let's be honest. This is ridiculous. 220 million is actually a moderately low budget compared to most of Marvel's output. It's clear that the negativity around this is purely that usual negativity that we see. Where else have we seen it? We've seen it in things like the Star Wars sequels focusing on a female character or a Ghostbusters film that has female leads or you get the point. Anyway, let's move away from that and take a look at Lee Tamahori's iconic 1994 film, Once Were Warriors. Now, that film was an adaptation of a novel by Alan Duff, and there's been a follow-up book that's been written to that book, which is getting a TV series adaptation alongside it. Once Were Warriors Generations will bring the Heke family forward 30 years to the present day with a new generation of characters. The original novel and film followed a family descended from Maori warriors who must deal with living in poverty under a violent father and being treated as outcast by society, and saw Tamara Morrison, Cliff Curtis and Rena Owen starring. It became the highest grossing film of all time in New Zealand. The producers have said that political aspirations, financial schemes, cultural clashes and a search for redemption are at the core of this series, filtered through the distinctive Maori culture and the Heke family's unforgiving past. So that's certainly a series to keep a lookout for. Another series to keep a lookout for Coming from Spectrum and AMC and now being picked up by streamer MGM Plus is Beacon 23, which is due to launch on the streamer on November the 12th. The story in this film is set in the farthest reaches of the Milky Way and Lena Headey plays Asta, a government agent, who encounters Stephen James as Hallen, a stoic ex-military man. Their fates become entangled as they're trapped together inside one of the many beacons that serve as lighthouses for the intergalactic travellers through the cosmos. Michael Wright, the head of MGM Plus, said in a statement, Beacon 23 is a series in the best tradition of thought-provoking genre storytelling. It's essential viewing for fans of premium science fiction drama. And I am well and truly along for the ride, even before you say that Zach Penn, who adapted Ready Player One, is showrunning alongside Glenn Mazzara, who gave us The Walking Dead. And that's it. That's the icing on a delicious cake. And a quick roundup of quick news. We've had the first photos released of the new reimagining of Toxic Avenger. And in one of the photos, we've seen Elijah Wood, who's undergone a drastic transformation to play the villain Fritz Garbinger. His transformation is fantastic. He looks like the Penguin from Batman. And I am going to champion for him to play the Penguin in Batman adaptations going forwards. The film sees Peter Dinklage starring as downtrodden janitor Winston Goose, who falls into a vat of toxic waste and becomes none other than the Toxic Avenger. Jacob Tremblay, Taylor Page, Kevin Bacon, Julia Davis and Jane Levy co-star. Fans of One Piece can celebrate as it's been granted a second season. The showrunners of the series have stated that they want at least 12 seasons. And given the reception that it's had, it's very possible that they might get it. The live action One Piece took in another 10 million views over its third week to take it up to 50 million views after just three weeks. Meanwhile, over at The Last of Us, after we reported that Florence Pugh is one of the potential candidates to take on the role of Abby in the second season of the series, we've now also heard that Shannon Berry from The Wilds is also potentially that casting. Now, showrunner Craig Mazin has already said that the casting has been completed on this, but they've not announced anything because the strike actions that are going on, they can't announce things. So we should hopefully be finding something out 
sometime soon. Place your bets now. Is it Shannon Berry or is it Florence Pugh? Or is it an outsider that we weren't expecting? And finally, there's a couple of trailers that I've caught this week. First one, the Percy Jackson series teaser trailer has landed and it looks pretty good. Effects-wise, it looks what you expect from a TV production, albeit decidedly polished. I've never read the books, but I have heard from people who have that this does look like it is going to be more faithful to the books than what the movies were, which the first movie was okay. Nothing that I wanted to rush out to say again, but this, this has piqued my interest. However, it's not piqued my interest as much as Nicolas Cage appearing in everybody's dreams in a film called Dream Scenario from A24. This looks like the kind of A24 weird life story film that I adore. Experimental, fun, funny, and probably quite dark at points. The idea behind the film, everyone around the world starts seeing the same person in their dreams. A character played by Nicolas Cage. That guy becomes an overnight celebrity. And it's how that impacts on his life and how being a celebrity that invades everyone's dreams overnight can lead down really weird alleys. It's A24. Of course, I'm there for it. It's it's going to be top of my list to watch when it comes out. And that, without me, is the news. (laughs) You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And it's come to our attention because we've got spies everywhere. We're like Smirsh, <laughs> that there are still people who haven't subscribed for whatever reason, haven't left a like or a review. And to those people, I ask you, why not? What we implore that you do as soon as this show is finished, you head over to your favorite podcast platform, hit the subscription button, and remember to leave a like and drop us a line because, you know, we're chatty guys. You've come yeah. to expect that from us. We have opinions. You have opinions. Let's share those opinions. Andy, for those people who haven't been in touch with us, how can they do so? Very easily. Oh, that's it. I'm, I'm impressed already. They can follow us on social media. Just go on to pretty much any social media channel, search for Film File UK, and you'll find us on there. Um, I'm very chatty on Facebook. I need that he needs is. to be said. I'm very chatty in the Facebook group. Um, we have a great. It's like the friends you never knew you had. We have a great party in there. We mock each other's taste in films jokingly. It's great. Um, but I'm all, we're also on twi- X Twitter. We're on um, Blue Sky. We're on Mastodon. We're on Threads. We're on Instagram. We're, ju- we're just dominating the world of social media. Or you can get if you don't do social media because you believe the government's monitoring it in order to you know take over your world and take over your life. Fire us an email. We're happy with emails. Podcast at filmfile.uk. Get in touch with us through that. And we'll get back in touch with you. And again, we'll talk films. We'll mock each other lovingly about what films you like and what you don't like. If there's anything you want us to cover, any films that you think we need to cover as a deep dive, send us a message. We'll add it to the list. The list is currently about 5,000 films (laughs) so far. And we're just moving into Halloween. So there's going to be a horror film basically every week. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, we'll add it onto the list. We'll get round to it eventually, as uh, Stephen, our regular listener, will attest. 18 months approximately, and you might yeah. get the film talked about. <laughs> but we'll get there in the end. Hey, that reminds me, we've got some upcoming news about a possible event. Yes. So, uh, stay All quiet right now, but stay tuned. Our lips are sealed for this point in time. So, on this special show, does that mean we have a deep dive? Well, of course, no film file would be complete without 
a deep dive. And this week's deep dive is into, is it an action film? Is it a sci-fi film? Is it a musical? We are going to be taking a look at Walter Hill's Streets of Fire. I'll be coming for her, and I'll be coming for you too. Sure you will, and I'll be waiting. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful... Stay and see the show, it's really good. The brutal... I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. Now, before Lee gets into providing a synopsis for Streets of Fire and a background to it, let me just categorically state that I'd never seen this film until this week. And this can go either way. And Lee still (laughs) doesn't know exactly what I think of it. And I can see him. He's he's dripping with sweat on camera at the moment because he's really like, will it be a Sing Street again, which I completely agree with him on? Or will it be Buckaroo Banzai? And we all know how that turned out. (laughs) We're still friends, though. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to just wait smugly while Lee tells you what Streets of Fire is all about. Streets of Fire came out in 1984. And as I said, it's not easy to categorise. It's an action movie. It's a crime neo-noir film. It's a, a musical. It was described upon release as a rock and roll fable. It was directed by genre king Walter Hill. It combines elements of the fashions and style and sociology of the 1980s but it's got an automobile culture and music style from the 1950s. It starred Michael Perret, where he now, being the obvious question, Diana Lane, Rick Moranis, Amy Madigan, Deborah Van Valkenburg from The Warriors, E.G. Daly, and a very young Willem Dafoe and Bill Paxton. The storyline. The film follows an ex-soldier, Tom Cody, played by Perret, and McCoy Madigan as they embark on a mission to rescue Cody's ex-girlfriend, Ellen Aim, Diana Lane, who was kidnapped by Raven Shaddock, great name, Willem Dafoe, the leader of an outlaw motorcycle gang, the Bombers. Released in 1984 to mixed reviews and was ultimately a box office failure, grossing only $8 million against its $14.5 million budget. However, it has grown into a cult classic. Is it a cult classic, Andy? Is it something that you thought, what the heck is this in a good way? Or is it, have we pulled a banzai, for want of a better term? I'm going to keep you sweating a bit longer. because I'm just going to spiral off to say, I read somewhere that Hill had said that this was basically the kind of film that when he was a 14-year-old boy, he would have loved. And it was coming off the back of 48 Hours and how well that was expected to be received, that he was basically given free reign to do what he wanted. And so he went, I like rock and roll. I like muscle cars. I like bikers. I like kissing in the rain, neon lights. And so he made a film where he could shoehorn everything that he thought his 14-year-old self would have absolutely adored. And it shows, because I'm sure if I was 14 years old, I'd have loved the heck out of this film. (laughs) But 
this is another one that I've approached maybe a bit too late in my life. And whilst I didn't, I didn't dislike it to the degree that I disliked Buckaroo Banzai. I mean, I did kind of like this, but it's not quite gelled completely with me because it, it's a bit of a mess. It's, it's a film out of time. Like you say, it's got aspects of like 80s aesthetic, but with nondescript era setting, but with 50s kind of vehicles and clothing and hairstyles. And it's just a meld of so many different things. And it doesn't all work. But when it does work, it's a beautiful looking film because it's Walter Hill. And Walter Hill can do style over substance. We mentioned his style over substance approach when we covered Last Man Standing about six episodes ago, that he's one of those directors who always knows how to make something look beautiful. But his 14-year-old self needed to not be involved in this film. (laughs) You know what, Andy? I am going to agree with everything you've said about this film. I like this film in the prism of when I watched it. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily work today. It has that MTV vibe about it and it is style over substance walter hill knows how to shoot a scene walter hill knows how to shoot action and he does that beautifully if you want a rain-drenched street with somebody holding uh, a sewn-off shotgun you go to walter hill and the thing is is rain-drenched imagery so many directors when the rain's coming down as heavy as it is in this film on, on some of the scenes it loses detail but he knows how to light things. He knows how to make things still have all the details so you don't get lost within the deluge of water. Everything's still important on screen. It does have a lot of problems. Now, there was apparently a cut that we never got to see. And if you watch the trailer, there are lots of scenes in the trailer that didn't make the final film. Uh, the studio didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> it was one of those films that was... It couldn't fit into a category, as we said right at the beginning. This is a mishmash of lots of... It's a comic book movie where a comic book doesn't exist. It's almost got a Western kind of feel yeah. to it. You've got that's a... the same about all Walter Hill films, isn't it? They're all Westerns. Yeah. It's, a, it's a town that's plagued by outlaws. In this case, it's Will and Defoe's Ravens, the biker gang. And one lone figure who returns to that town, who's got a bit of a cro- crooked past who might be the only one who could save the town from falling apart because the law are ineffective. It is Last Man Standing. Yeah. It, it is a classic Western. It's just given this whole different kind of viewpoint. Like the cast, I mean, Willem Dafoe is just playing Willem Dafoe. Let's be honest. He's just having fun with the role. Uh, Bill Paxton pops up as Clyde. That was quite a pleasant surprise to see Bill yeah. Paxton with like a 1950s uh, quiff hairstyle. Michael Parry, you said, where, where is he now? Um, well, he's quite busy. He's done about 40 films in the past 10 years. He's a jobbing actor. I mean, he's popped up in things. It's low budget fare like Renegades or City of Lies or Jason's Letter or Red Maple Leaf. He did pop up in the remake of the Philadelphia Experiment, which he starred in the original. That's a great yeah. film. And we'll deep dive in Philadelphia Experiments at some point um, in 2012. And you can kind of look at this film and see why he's just a jobbing actor these days because yeah. he just doesn't have that leading man charisma at all. And they were looking for a new Steve McQueen. They will, they, they'd offered the part to Tom Cruise who turned it down. And Michael Paré is, he's just one of those actors who'd been in a quite a good film called Eddie and the Cruisers. 
mm. um, which is a, a rock and roll thriller with Tom Berenger. And he was on a hit TV series at the time, but he couldn't fill the big screen. And for somebody who needs to be the heart of a movie like this, you needed a Tom Cruise. You needed a young Bruce Willis. You needed somebody who could dominate the frame. And Michael Pere is a bit of a black hole. Yeah, He doesn't have the charisma. He has the looks. He can play cool quite well. But every scene he's in, and especially when he's playing against Defoe, he's left standing. And he just doesn't have the acting chops or the personality or the charisma to be able to do that. He would have been a pretty good supporting actor, but as a leading man in a big budget action fest, which was already taking gambles with its uh, um, tricky genres, that's what lets the film down. He's not bad. He's not dreadful. Yeah, he just doesn't, he's he just, just doesn't leave a lasting impression. He doesn't and have that's that thing. the thing. Yeah. Uh, Rick Moranis is in here, and we generally love Rick Moranis, but he feels so out of place within this film. Uh, he feels awkward. The role that he's given doesn't feel like a Rick Moranis kind of role. And apparently, Moranis caused some friction on set between him and Michael Parry, uh, mainly because Moranis, coming from a comedy background, there's this whole thing that comics on film sets will be mocking everyone. They'll be mocking each other jokingly. But Parry took a lot of things seriously. There's a quote from uh, Michael Parry about it. Moranis drove me out of my mind. There's a whole wave of insult comedy. In the real world, if someone insults you a couple of times, you can smack them or punch them. You can't do that on a movie set. Who's this weird-looking little guy who couldn't get laid in a whorehouse with a fistful of 50s. He genuinely hated Rick Moranis. Apparently, the first thing that Rick Moranis said to him was like, do you just act cool or you're really cool? And that just set him off on a bad streak with him. And he never got on through the whole lot of shooting. Apparently, Moranis was included because he was one of uh, Joel Silver's dear friends. And he was forced in production. And that's probably why Moranis's character doesn't quite fit in. Because it was a case of Walter Hill then going, I need to find, oh, you can do that role. Uh, Dinah Lane was only 18 when she made this film. I, I think she is, uh, she's the heart of it. I think mm. she got better as, a, as an actor as her career went on. But she's not bad. And she certainly has much more screen charisma than Michael Parade does. Sadly, all her vocals were dubbed. We never got to hear a correct voice. But I, I like the musical numbers. The musical numbers are great. There's some really interesting artists on the soundtrack. I did, I did feel that the the musical numbers, yes, I quite liked them, but they didn't feel like they fit. The film opens with a musical number. It closes with a musical number. And I was just like, what are these for? What are they there for? You're just, you're just boring me. Get to the film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some good work on it. Jim Steinman. Uh, of Meatloaf fame was yes. the chief writer. There were songs by Tom Petty, Ry Cuda, The Fix, Stevie Nicks on it. It has a strong soundtrack to it. But it's it's an ambitious film, mm. and you can't fault it for that. It looks great. Walter Hill is a fantastic action director. It's just all over the place. Now, apparently, the longer cut made more sense than than the version that we've got. But by the time the film came out, it was already such a big box office bomb that no one ever thought to release a director's cut of it. Yeah. But I'll stand by it. It's, it's a film that I like, uh, and it's a film that I like because of its ambitions. And it's the kind of film that, that belongs to the 80s and will never get made again, uh, alongside films like The Adventures of Ford Fairlane or 
Hudson Hawk, which we've talked about before. Yes. I'd rather see a film that's ambitious than is just boring. Uh, yeah, at least it took, it took creative risks. It took design risks. We mentioned quite frequently in reviews that there's tropes and there's cliches and they're overdone. And whilst this does do them, it's having fun and doing something a bit a bit out there. It was planned to be the part, uh, first part of a trilogy as well. But after it flopped at the box office, that put a stopper on that. But Paré did reprise his role as Cody alongside Deborah Van Valkenburg's Reva in Road to Hell in 2008. Yeah, directed by the legendary low-budget filmmaker Albert Pewen. Yeah. Uh, and Paré played Tom Cody again, but it is an unofficial sequel. I've yeah. never seen it. I know very little about it. I don't know if it had any musical numbers in it at all. <laughs> it's just silent all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but overall, style over substance. Messy, but intriguing. And despite the unnecessary musical openings and closings that sandwich the film, I did find myself enjoying most of it, in spite of it. I knew in my heart of hearts that what I was watching was a stinker. But I think a part of my 14-year-old self rose to the surface at some points and went, you know what, go back a few decades, you'd have loved the hell out of this. Andy, if you want to watch Streets of Fire, and I really insist that you give it a go because it is such a time capsule to mm. a, a certain kind of filmmaking, and especially with Joel Silver connected to it, that we won't ever see again. Uh, but where can you find it, Andy, if you do want to watch it? It's not available for free on any service, but you can rent it from Apple TV for about £3.50, or you can purchase it on all streaming things to own and re-watch if you feel the need to, or just purchase the DVD or Blu-ray. The Blu-ray superb, by the way. It's a really good... A really good package. Well, like we said as well, is like Walter Hill films always look great. So if you can get that high quality Blu-ray and just appreciate his, the the lensing that goes into his films, and then if you get it on Blu-ray, you can pass it around all your friends, and then you can talk about it like we just do. Create a cult. Yes, we'll call it the deep dive cult. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another deep dive. So now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy and I inexplicably have seen two films. <laughs> Doesn't happen often. Out Mark of this three. down in your diary, people. <laughs> yeah. This is a special time. This is like a solar eclipse. <laughs> so, Andy, do we want to kick off with... Let's start with No One Will Save You. No One Will Save You follows a young girl named Bryn who has a darker past... She is sort of deeply hated by the town that she lives in. She is secluded and she keeps to herself. She built this bubble that she feels safe in. A few minutes into the movie, that bubble gets popped. It's absolutely terrifying. an alien in her community and then this other alien story happens on top of that and there's so many things i loved about playing this character she has a major conflict the emotions that she's going through they were real to me Bryn runs a lot in this movie. Brian said, I want you to run like tom cruise and i thought i was a runner before this film I am now. We throw a couple of curveballs. 
It's a lot of fun. We talked about this when the trailer dropped, and both Andy and I were really intrigued by this. Uh, we both like uh, Brian Duffield's Love and Monsters. Yes. Uh, we know he's a quite uh, idiosyncratic screenwriter. I mean, he wrote The Babysitter as well, which is in amongst my favourites of um, recent eras of horror comedy approaches. So we were pretty excited for this. It dropped on Apple Plus in the States. It dropped on Hulu. Uh, I kind of feel that it would have been nice to have had a big screen release because it's incredibly visual. But I also think the quirkiness of this means that it sits quite well on a streamer. Anyway, the film stars Caitlin Diva, who you remember from Booksmart. She's been in Justified. And she was also in another of my recent favourite films of last year, Rosalind. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. She plays Bryn, who lives a quiet, solitary life in her childhood home. For whatever reason, she has been ostracised by the local community. When her home is invaded by aliens, Bryn must face the threat and face the threat alone. So this is part alien invasion film. I use a lot of tropes from alien invasion films. It's also a home invasion film. Uh, What makes this absolutely unique is the distinct lack of dialogue. Yeah, much much like we had in recent years with A Quiet Place, which had that had the reason for the lack of dialogue. This one, it's simply because she's in isolation. Who would she be talking to? And so it is all aside from one one brief line of dialogue towards the back end of the film. The whole lot is just done with grunts, guttural noises, strange, disturbing noises from the aliens that are invading, and the tension. And it's important to note that Caitlin Dever is not just the lead actress, she's more or less the only presence for the majority of the film. Every scene, she is the focus of. This isn't a film, an alien invasion film, which it breaks away to follow some other characters every now and then. It's purely focused on her throughout and her struggle and her fight for survival and her journey with no one around to save her. No one will save you is the the name of the film. There's multiple reasons for that. It's also, annoyingly, a film that we can't talk too much about what makes it so great because there's so many spoilers. Absolutely. I, I want to point out that the the fact that there's zero dialogue doesn't mean that there's no sound. Oh, no, it utilizes sound mix beautifully. But it never feels as though that's a gimmick. No. It feels as though it's, it's intrinsic, and it does become intrinsic to the plot. I like this a lot. I'm, I'm a massive, massive fan of... Uh, I even liked Third Kind. Um, yeah. I love a good Aliens movie, and this is a good Aliens movie. Uh, it, it borrows from other elements that we've seen before, including Quite sort of the, the the Cabin in the Woods type uh, mm. movie of, of home invasions. There's references to things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, the Aliens as kind of your Roswell-esque aliens. Uh, uh, and even they are played... Uh, differently within this movie we're seeing aliens do things that we we've not seen before there's some very interesting disturbing movements the way that the aliens move sometimes it's almost fluid but other times it's like juttery jerky actions 
And it's really unnerving that you can never really get a handle on them. And there's multiple different designs of aliens, which I think as the story goes on, it kind of semi explains the reason why there's such a variation of these aliens who are invading. We have to be very careful. We're not go- we don't want to spoil anything. What I will say is that it utilizes the tropes and it utilizes things that it's borrowed from other things, but it plays with them in quite a unique way. And the ending of this film was a really smart ending. I loved how it re- how the final resolution came out because it was not what I was expecting at all. It's a film that will constantly change your expectations of where it's going, as Andy said, right through to the end. Now, for me, it's it short of being a great movie, just because by the time we get around to the third act, it does become repetitious. Yeah. And uh, it, even though it's a short film, it could have lost 10 minutes quite easily. Uh, and I think at those times when that repetitive nature take over, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit because I, I felt it was unnecessary. It had been done before and better within the confines of its own film. But it's still a very, very smart and at times scary horror sci-fi. Uh, and I've got to point out that Caitlin Dever, who is who's a brittle character all the way through until a certain point, is brilliant. Yeah, and it's good to see the response to this film online, that everyone's like checking it out and finding it. And I don't think they would have found it if it got a cinema release. I think, like I you said, the streaming release is kind of beneficial to it because this is the film that might put Caitlin Dever properly on the map. She should be on the map after Booksmart anyway. She should be on the map after Justified, but no one really recognises her. But this is the film that, because she's our attention throughout and she holds your attention well throughout, this is the one that people are going to suddenly sit up and pay attention to it and hopefully we'll get to see her rise to stardom that she's so, well, so deserved ever since her early days of acting. What I love about this is not only is it an alien invasion film, but it's a personal journey yeah. story. It's a person coming to terms with grief and mistakes of past life. And it plays out beautifully because the intrigue as to what has led to her being so isolated is fundamental to how the whole developments go on and fundamental to that the very spe- the very smart ending that I've mentioned but won't give away. I recommend this film for everyone. Uh, one of the ones who were recommended it to work at work to this weekend came in today and said that her and a partner absolutely both loved it. They basically th- thanked me for pointing me in the direction, just said it was really, really good. It was scary, but it was also really clever. So it's a crowd pleaser. It's on streaming. Give it a shot. Absolutely. Even with the reservations that I have about it, I still had a darn good time with it. And I look forward to seeing what Brian Duffield's going to do next. Um, a quick note as well, that when you watch it, um, from discussion offline, me and Lee have d- I've come to the conclusion that sit in a darkened room and watch it. Because if you've got lights on causing some glare on the TV, it can make some of the very dark cinematography hard to watch. Uh, but I watched it at home. I've, I've got a setup with lights are off when we're watching a film we're watching them at night and i've got a backlight behind my tv so that really brought up the the gradients of darker edged color um so watch it in the ideal circumstances basically pretend you're in a cinema so that's that andy what else do you have for us it's been out a couple of weeks but i got to see past lives and i wanted to bring that to the show this week now 
Childhood sweethearts reconnect only to realize they were meant for each other. There's just this kid in my head. I think I just missed him. Did he miss you? This is my life. This is where I'm supposed to be. Want you to stay. Nora, played by Greta Lee and Hei Sung, played by T.O.U., were close childhood friends who were separated when Nora's family left South Korea to seek opportunities in Toronto. Twelve years later, after reconnecting during their student years, Nora has now emigrated to New York. While Hei Sung is still residing in South Korea, the pair once more became distant, never pursuing the possibility of there being a stronger connection between the pair. Another twelve years pass, and Hei Sung plans a visit to New York, and the pair reconnect once more. But now Nora is married to Arthur, played by John Magaro, who wonders if he is in the way of these old friends who could be something more connected. The immediate comparison that sprung to mind as the credits rolled on this film was to the films of Richard Linklater, and in particular his Before trilogy, which explored similar themes of opportunities, regrets, decisions, life choices, and love from a very real and very human perspective. The wonderful manner in which it takes a slice-of-life approach at three stages of the friends' lives to reflect on the bonds that connected them and exploring whether some bonds can remain unbroken yet still allow the individuals to travel other paths makes for an engaging, compelling, sometimes awkward, yet immensely emotional and beautiful film. The primary characters are given very little background to begin with, but as the film plays out, we get to understand them more as small details make the way into the conversations that play out between all parties around them. Surrounding cast feels somewhat superfluous, only rarely there to serve the definitions of Nora and Hei Sung rather than have an identity themselves. And even Arthur, despite his importance to Nora, is granted a kind of broad strokes approach. But this works so well as it is Nora and Hei Sung's story. And it's their lives that we're here to immerse ourselves in. And the two leads play their parts so well that from very early on, I was absolutely locked into their tale. Never showy, the film is grounded, while still making wonderful use of the environment around the story. The philosophies that are discussed regarding past lives and how they set up encounters in the next life makes for a beautiful perspective on missed opportunities. And by the end of the film, I couldn't help but reminded of those I was close to over the decades that I also lost contact with, wondering where are they in their lives now and whether, if there is an afterlife, we would cross paths again as eternal souls or was this time around our last encounter? Past Lives is a stunning debut by writer-director Celine Sung and it's marked her down as a creator that I am certain to watch out for in the future. Entirely recommended viewing. And finally... Uh, a little bit of a, a, a divergence from what we normally review. We're going to be talking about the first entry into what can be described as the John Wick verse, and that is the launch on Amazon Prime of episode one of The Continental. The suit doesn't make a man. That's what's inside the suit that counts. It's resourcefulness and perhaps an open heart. Well, what are you waiting for? I haven't finished my drink. This sacred institution wields power 
beyond your imagination. Winston, your brother stole something from me. What you took is very important to a lot of very dangerous people. Find him, because if you don't, I'll bring the weight of this whole institution down on you both. Sharon, show our guests the door. You made a big mistake coming here. You're my brother, Frankie. We have to strike first. And I need all the help I can get. How are we supposed to believe a guy in an ascot can pull this off? It's a cravat. So the Continental's been muted for some time and it arrives ahead of next year's John Wick spin-off, The Ballerina. This is a three-part origin story for the saga's uh, hotelier, Winston Scott, played on the big screen by Ian McShane and replaced here by the fresh-faced Colin Woodle, who captures the essence of Ian McShane's character perfectly. After his estranged brother Frankie steals the template for the high table's infamous gold coins, Winston, along with his cravat, is dragged before the Continental Hotel's current manager, uh, Cormac O'Connor, played by Mel Gibson, and tasked with recovering the missing press. Um, There's a lot to like in this if you're a fan of the John Wick universe. Outside of that, you might view it a little bit different. I think you and I kind of agree in principle of what we liked and disliked about this this first episode. And, and I've got to point out, the first episode runs at, at nearly 90 minutes. Yeah, it's basically a feature length. Um, and it looks like the other two episodes are also going to be quite long. And I do know that other critics have commented that it feels over long as one film, if you take the whole lot, but it doesn't feel long enough for a TV series. And I can kind of see that because what I love about this, it opens with a great heist going on at the Continental to steal that um, coin press. And it has a chase sequence up a flight of stairs and throughout the Continental that is just jaw-dropping, so well choreographed and beautifully put together and brutal. And then it quickly, rapidly throws you to a different character. And then it rapidly throws you to a different character. And then it rapidly throws you to more characters. And it feels like it's trying to set up a bit too much when all we're really here, really here for is Winston. Yeah, I agree. We want Winston. And whenever Winston's not on screen and other characters are introduced, it's like they're trying to world build, which I'm all fine with. But then they go, oh, but people want Winston. And so they don't give you enough of these side characters because they quickly shift back to Winston, which picks you back up again and makes you go, right, I'm back in. But I don't care about the rest of the characters and I don't really know them. And it doesn't feel like this show at this point wants me to know them. I, I thought the 70s vibe was great. It captured the grimy New York of the 1970s perfectly. Uh, and especially when you compare it to the John Wick movies of, of rubbish-strewn streets. Uh, the the dangerous place that that New York was back in the 1970s that yeah. that you saw in movies like Taxi Driver it captures that beautifully. It, it's dark and grimy, sometimes a little bit too dark. So again, like the movie we mentioned earlier, it's best watching it at night because otherwise you're going to need the brilliance turned up full. Um, yeah. But it it slightly overstays its welcome. I mm. think I'd have enjoyed this much more if it was an hour. Uh, and we got those extra half an hour as, a, as an additional episode because I, I stopped for a break and was almost reluctant to go back to it. 
Now, I love, as you know, the John Wick movies. They, I think they are a phenomenal tour de force uh, of action movie making. And it has changed action movie making for everybody. And even with a director as confident as Albert Hughes, you remember him from Menace to Society and the great underrated book of Eli, I missed Chad Stileski's flair for the elaborate staging he does with his action sequences. But that was okay. You did get some good standout. As you say, the, the moment on the stairs was, was fantastic. I, I tried to work out why I'm caring for an awful lot of, a lot of this movie. Mel Gibson doesn't have much of an impact in there, which is a shame because I've seen him play similar kind of crime lord roles in straight to DVD or Sky originals of recent years, much more effectively. And then you get the incredible, like I said, there's so many characters that he's trying to introduce. Some of them could easily be excised. I think it's slowed down as much as I kind of smiled at the whole concept of them. But Hansel and Gretel, the assassins, were absolutely pointless. Yeah. I don't Absolutely know if we get to see them again, but they were thrown in so quickly to keep it that sort of John Wick weirdness that we'd seen with some of the other assassins that it felt a little bit like a placeholder. Yes, I did. I mean, you've already said that Colin Woodall was Ian McShane's Winston and he's very captivating. I think that he's he's a huge strength in here. I, I was quite pleased to see Peter Green in there, who's playing another character who we've seen in the John Wick films, uh, Uncle Charlie, who's played by David Patrick Kelly in the first two John Wick films. Uh, Peter Green is one of those actors that you'll look at and you'll go, where have I seen him before? I did exactly the same. I'm going to tell you right now, you've seen him in Judgment Night, you've seen him in Pulp Fiction, you've seen him in The Mask, you've seen him in The Usual Suspects, you've seen him in loads of films. He was Zed in Pulp Fiction. That's where you probably remember him the most. But he's a great actor and he brings something to that role as well. He, you know, he's got that edge to him, but he's got that heart to him. And it's a character that I'm, I'm kind of latched onto. Uh, the rest of the cast are all reasonably okay. Yeah. With what little material they're getting given at this point in time. Maybe the next two episodes will build them up a bit more. But at this point in time, it just feels that it's trying to tell too much of a story whilst not telling enough of a story at the same time. It's a bit of a middle ground mess. That it doesn't know whether it wants to be a film or it wants to be a TV show. I've got to agree. I mean, it does prove that there is weight to be had with the John Wick universe. Yes. That we don't just need John Wick in a scene to make that odd alternate reality work because there's enough intriguing elements in there to to keep us satisfied and, and makes me more interested for the ballerina. Yeah. But maybe... The best way to think about this is watch all three and we come back to it and, and figure out whether it was worth the journey. So in in a few weeks time, once all three have aired, we'll touch up. We might not do a full review, but we'll at least do a, a catch up and a touch up to just say whether it worked as a whole and whether it does bode well for the future of the Wikiverse. And that's what I'm going to call it from now on. Wikiverse. Okay. I'll go with that. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, so that's what's out this week Andy what's coming up over the next week so there's two special anniversaries this next week and so two films are getting reissued on the big screen first one not fussed with Hocus Pocus but celebrates Mm. its 30th anniversary you know I never liked it yeah I've never had the love for it either but there's a huge audience out there who do who will no doubt flock to the cinemas to treat themselves however what I do want to treat myself to is the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist 
a film that we deep dived not too long ago. And I would love to see that on the big screen again. Which version's getting released? Do we know? I think it's the original theatrical version has been given a 4K cleanup. If you if horror's definitely your thing, then Saw X is also coming out. Not for me. And I'm a sucker for it, even though I'm going to hate it. So I will get to watch it, hopefully <laughs> in time for next week's show. Uh, the Creator lands, which both of us have got our eye on. Uh, yeah, that looks a lot more up our alley. And then if you're in Sheffield or Stockport next week, Tuesday in Sheffield, there's a special screening of Boland Shoes with a Q&A with none other than ourselves hosting. So pop along to Sheffield Light Cinema on Tuesday night and come and see Boland Shoes. Or you can, catch it with, you can catch it with another Q&A in Stockport with another team on Wednesday the 4th of October. So uh, the special screenings that the Light have managed to secure and we're happy to be involved in. Anything on streaming? Over on streaming and TV, uh, BBC this weekend, Boiling Point series starts. The spin-off series from the Stephen Graham movie um, of a couple of years ago about, well, it was a it was a one-shot take look at a night in a restaurant and it was intense. I'm looking forward to this TV series to see whether it can capture that intensity. On Now TV and Sky, <laughs> I realised when I was going to said say that it's worth watching this film, that the reason why I enjoyed this film is I watched Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey just before it, so my expectations were really low. But Adam Driver's 65 lands on Now TV and Sky, and at the back of my mind, I know it wasn't a good film, but it might be worth a check. Uh, there's also a film called Swallowed that lands on Now TV and Sky. Oh, I've heard of that one. Over on Netflix, there's a film called Nowhere, which the synopsis, in the middle of Nowhere, you can only be saved by yourself. A survival thriller which follows Mia, a pregnant woman who escapes from her country, devastated by overpopulation and lack of resources. On her flight, a storm throws a container she is travelling in, in into the sea and she must begin the struggle to survive. Sounds like it could be okay. And, of course, we've mentioned them before, Wes Anderson's Roald Dahl shorts all land over this coming week. Um, Amazon, Gen V, which is basically the new mutants, but done in a dirty over-the-top, gross-out kind of way. I'm there for it. It's set in the world of the boys. You know what to expect. And on Apple TV+, Plus, Flora and Son. Single mum Flora is at a loss about what to do with her rebellious teenage son, Max. Encouraged by the police to find Max a hobby, she tries to occupy him with uh, an old acoustic guitar. And with the help of a washed-up LA musician played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Flora and Max discover the power of music. This actually sounds right up, right up our alley. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. I think we'll be checking this one out and reporting back. Anything that has the power of music to bring people together, we're going to check out, let's be honest. Yeah, just like Streets <laughs> of Fire. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking more Sing Streets, but you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and that, folks, that's us done for this um, unique episode <laughs> of The Film File, and all will be revealed next week as to why what it's happened? so unique. <laughs> the mystery <laughs> that is this episode. Uh, but before we go, and we do this every week, our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed, uh, that we've loved, that we want to tell you all about. Andy, your neat thing for this week is? Uh, it was only a matter of time before I'd come back to this, wasn't it? Uh, welcome to Wrexham. Started last week, and we're three episodes in, and you knew that I was going to bring Welcome to Wrexham it was at on some there. point. But the reason why I'm bringing it so early on into the season is not only because it's still so great and such a great look at life, but this week there was an episode that took a look at Mullins, one of the players, and his relationship with his toddler who suffers from autism. 
and the fan who follows the team, Millie Tipping, who suffers from autism. And what Wrexham as a club and as a town and as a people means to her and how her interactions with the team have encouraged Mullins in his relationship with raising his own son, who he can see the problems that he's going to have raising because of his severe autism. But Millie's become such a strong-minded person, despite hers. It's great. You get to see how the team are an outlet for Millie's condition. And it's just, this is everything that Welcome to Wrexham is so good at doing. Because when it was pitched, it was like, oh, so it's just going to be a show about football. But it's not. It's a show about people. It's a show about what fandom means to people. You could replace football from this and you could make it about comic books and how the community rally around that. Or you could make it about movies or you could make it about whatever you want. Football is, yes, it's integral to an aspect of this show. But the show itself is about community. It's about genuine people, how their lives are impacted by something they love. And that this week's episode had me close to tears. It was just such a moving look at someone's individual journey. Welcome to Wrexham is, if you've been put off watching Welcome to Wrexham, and it's on season two now, simply because you go, eh, football, I'm not bothered. Give it a try. I know a load of people who hate football, who sit and watch this as soon as it drops each week, because they are connecting with what, what the emotional aspect of this is, the community aspect. In the same way that Ted Lasso, you didn't need to like football to enjoy the fun of that. Welcome to Wrexham is a football show where football is sidelined. My neat thing goes out to Andy because it's a big thank you to <laughs> Andy for pointing me in the direction of this film. And he talked about it on the show uh, last year, I think. Yep. And that is the absolutely divine Marcel the Shell with shoes on. So uh, as Andy mentioned when it came out, Marcel is an adorable one-inch tall shell. Yeah, you heard me right. That lives with his grandmother Connie, the only residents of a of a house where the owners have mysteriously moved on. Uh, when they're discovered by a guest uh, amongst all the clutter by uh, someone who's there and using it as an Airbnb, he makes short films about them, posts them online, which brings Marcel millions of passionate fans and a new hope that he could be reunited with his long lost family. This is weird. It's gorgeously constructed. It's profound. It's downright funny. And it's absolutely original. Um, I remember Andy absolutely loving uh, this movie when it came out and, and just singing its praises. It was nominated <laughs> for an Oscar. Uh, it uses stop frame animation beautifully. Uh, and it is just uh, just pure joy. Yes, it's cute. And they lean into that, especially with co-writer and co-creator Jenny Slate. Uh, adorable, beautiful, childlike voice of Marcel. Um, and the shell is just a, a shell with shoes and a big single eye. But there's a, a, an inbuilt innocence to it and, and just a, a, a beautiful a beautiful sweetness about the whole thing. It was a film that I watched with the family. Didn't mention anything about it before we watched it because I didn't want to... I didn't want to, to come in with expectations for it, mm. but there's something about it. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful looking film. Uh, it's beautifully shot using natural light and, and, and organic textures, but there is just a pure innocence and a pure joy and love in this film. 
Um, there's huge amounts of pathos. It's sometimes it's incredibly absurd. You will fall in love with it. If you fall in love with it as much as we did, there was not a dry eye in the house uh, for, for many reasons. And, and it just it's this kind of unique mockumentary that just embraces the joy of life through uh, an exceptionally original, unique character. And I cannot recommend it enough. Marcel's viewpoints on life, I want to live by. Especially the one quote from him, guess why I smile a lot? Because it's worth it. Yeah. And that's just beautiful. Uh, you can find it if you want to watch it. It's on Now TV and Sky Movies. And I highly recommend it, as Andy recommended it to me. And that, folks, that's our neat things for this week. As we said, it's been a bit of a, a different show. We got there in the end. Um, we'll tell you why next week. And we'll be back next week, all being well. Yes. Uh, and hopefully with uh, some... I'm hoping to get to see quite a few films this week. But uh, let's be honest, everything will get in the way and something will go wrong. But I should at least have... We should at least have the streaming films watched. And uh, back to normal. So I'll see you next week, buddy. Or if not, I'll hopefully see you for a movie this week. But before we go... I don't go pointing it unless I'm going to use it. Write the theme tune, sing the theme tune, play the theme tune. I'm the theme tune. (laughs) (laughs) Who still need to change their acronym. Yes. (laughs) Make it like a song. (laughs) A-M-P-T-P. Was The Expandables 4. So expandables. does that <laughs> expandables. expandables? Expandables. Probably, probably uh, slashed alone. <laughs> oh, sh- uh, uh, yeah. So we'll do the box off. Expand, expand. You got me saying it now. <laughs> Come on, Barbie, let's go party. And Aqua are now going to sue the living asses off us. <laughs> <laughs>